Hello everyone, I'm Charlotte. And I'm Dina. Welcome to The Grim Curriculum. Alright Charlotte, so 1922 was a hundred years ago. Right. As a woman living in 2022, how do you think you would have survived back then? Well, I always say, like, I have a big fondness for, like, vintage things. Like, I love I love music and, like, old jazz and old swing. And, like, the fashion of that era for both, like, men and women was, like, chef's kiss. Um, but, like, I can still appreciate those in the year we're in now without having to be like, oh, the racism, the sexism, all that fun stuff. Not to mention just, like, the technology. I like having my cell phone. I like my internet and my video games. We're spoiled now. Yeah, we are. And, like, even these guys, like, the the Gruber family that we're still talking about, um, I wouldn't have wanted to, like, leave my house to go to the bathroom, for example. Like, an outdoor outhouse. Well, especially in the middle of the night in Germany. Like, in the winter. I hate to always <laughs> go back to my fear of bears. Oh but, God, like, yeah. I just feel like, for me personally, like, in a perfect world in 1922, I would, like be dressed up all cute, I'd have, like, cute hair, listen to cute music, it would be great, but, like, the reality of it is I would end up, like, working on some farm with my, like, 25 children. Oh, God, And yeah. my, like, 17 donkeys that I have to take care the, of. The, the dream, the fantasy would be to, like, b to be, like, um... Like, one of those, like, rebellious women that lived in Paris. Yeah, and, and wore like, pants. Yeah, and went to burlesque and, like, yes. all that kind of thing. But, yeah, you're probably, you know, because it's just a fantasy, you're probably right. We probably would have all had 16 children, 10 of whom have not made it past the age of five. Oh, my God, I'd be, like, a dirt farmer or something. Oh, like, I just feel like, <laughs> like, it'd be, like, Dina the dirt farmer. And oh, I just man. think, like, I wouldn't have done well. And, I mean look at, I mean, not like bad stuff obviously happens a lot now, but look at the kind of shit that was happening in farms back then. Well, yeah, and the other thing is, too, is that at least, like I said, with the technology for the true crime world, at least we've come a long way with that sort of thing, right? So, and you know, like, even things like we're getting closure on cases that have been unsolved for years, but like, this is one of those where I don't know that we're going to get that ever. No, I feel like, honestly, even just back then, like, the biggest news you probably could get is, like, who stole old Marvin's cow. Like, oh, that's the yeah, big mystery totally. that got solved. Yeah. I don't know. Honestly, like, it seems like it would be interesting to really see what life was like back then, but at the same time, as messed up as our world is now, I'm glad we're here now. I like pants. I like voting. Yes. I like... Yep smoking weed and drinking and, and all that stuff. So, I mean, we wouldn't have video games. I I mean, they didn't know what they were missing. Right? I would have my, like, ball in a cup on my dirt farm oh, and no. that would be my life. Can you... Oh, this is just a silly thought now. Can you imagine, like, introducing... <laughs> Maybe Andreas Gruber wouldn't have been such a meanie if he'd played, like, Crash Bandicoot or something. I think Andreas Gruber could have benefited from a ball in a cup. I don't even think the man uh, had that. No, you're right. He was he was born fully grown up Andreas Gruber. Like he had He grew up like he was born with a mustache yeah, and like totally. a lifelong amount of problems as a baby. Yeah. I can't he's a man that you can't imagine as a child. No, you was like some people you just like they're born grown. Yeah, like people called Linda. Yeah. There's never been a baby Linda. That's you know, on topic. But anyway. If anyone has a baby named Linda, please tell us yes, how she's doing. Yes, please let us know how baby Linda is doing. You're beautiful, baby Linda. I've never seen one. Go play with baby Karen. It's like a, yeah, same thing. There's, 
you know what? This is off topic and not at all true crime related, but uh, tweet at us. Baby names that you don't think belong to babies. Like, Carl. Yeah. Or like, I use this one a lot, but like, Margaret. I know Margaret could be Maggie. Margie. Mar- but baby Mar- No, Margie's a grown-ass woman who plays bills. That's plays true. Plays bills, pays bills, you know what I mean. She, she plays crib. Cribbage. <laughs> I don't know what cards are. And shuffleboard. So, now, now, dear dear listeners, if you're listening to this and you're thinking, hey, the podcast seems a little bit different, it's because we are recording at, what is it, 6.54 p.m. Uh, we usually record in the mornings, um, which means that we haven't enjoyed any of our jive parsley or any of that for the day, and today we have. Yeah. So, um, welcome. Thank you for being here. Uh, this is part <laughs> two of our series on the Hinter Kaifek murders. Today we are going to be covering the grisly murders themselves, as well as the shocking discovery of the bodies. Uh, and now that you've just sat through all that, we're going to do a quick uh, recap of part one. If you haven't listened to part one, go back, listen to that, and then meet us back here. All right, let's, uh, let's dive on in. Last week, we introduced the Gruber family, who consisted of 62-year-old Andreas, 72-year-old Cecilia Gruber, as well as Victoria Gabriel, age 35, and her two children, 7-year-old Cecilia and 2-year-old Joseph. We talked about how their longtime maid left after making numerous claims of strange noises in the house, as well as having a constant feeling of being watched. And horrifyingly enough, uh, we talked about how after she left, the Gruber family began hearing those strange noises and experiencing some pretty alarming things. Alarming, honestly, is such an understatement. Man, I, like, I have not stopped thinking about those footsteps leading to the house and then not going anywhere. That's, like, that is straight-up horror movie stuff. I couldn't agree with you more on that. Um, so anyways, they were able to find a replacement for their maid after six months. They hired 44-year-old Maria Baumgartner, or Baumgartner, I guess if it's German, might be Baum... Anyway, Maria Baumgartner. It's likely that she was dropped off off at the farm by her sister, and it's largely speculated that other than the murderer or murderers, she was the last person to see anyone in the Gruber family alive. Maria, along with the rest of the Gruber family, would be dead less than a few hours later. And we want to talk about who Maria was, because we noticed that... A lot of sources barely even cover her. But at the end of the day, she's very much still a person, a part of this as well. Absolutely. And she was as much, if not more, of a victim than some of the other Grubers. And at the end of the day, this is a case that comes from a time where a lot of personal records were either really limited or just straight up didn't exist. But when we were doing our research, we came across a bunch of old German archives that we were able to translate. And we actually found some pretty good information about her. Maria was one of six children born to Joseph and Maria Baumgartner. Uh, There's a lot of Josephs in this story. Yes. Maria lived with her parents and family, but she moved out to work as a live-in maid when her parents both passed away. She had a walking disability due to a shortened foot, and she was granted a disability card in 1922. It is also stated that she possibly had some sort of developmental delay or other kind of mental disability. It was due to that that she most likely lost the job she had prior to arriving in Hinterkaifeck. Apparently, the mayor of the town she worked in didn't like the idea of a disabled person in their community, which is awful. Oh my god. Yeah, not the most understanding and compassionate group of people in that town. And without getting too much into German World War II history, we have to say, while that it's incredibly unfair and horrible... 
it's kind of not surprising that this was kind of their response during the time. No, honestly, it's terrible, but unfortunately, it's really not that big of a surprise. It's likely that one of her sisters helped her find the job by using using an employment agency that, interestingly enough, had helped the Gruber family find a maid in the past. I think this story is incredibly sad and tragic on its own, but the information about Maria, it really just makes Mm -hmm. everything a lot worse for me personally. Yeah. A lot of the resources that we use, they barely mention her other than just saying that she was killed on her first night there. Knowing that she likely lost her last job due to things that were completely beyond her control, and then she ended up here in Hinterkaifeck, it's such a horrible combination of absolutely horrific luck Again, sounds like the plot of a horror movie. It's awful. Terrible. No one really knows what happened on Hinterkaifeck Farm on March 31st, 1922, but there is a fair bit that was able to be confirmed, as well as evidence to suggest what most likely happened. So buckle up, everyone. It's about to get real dark real fast. All right, so it's likely that at some point in the evening, each member of the Gruber family, with the exception of little Joseph, was lured into the barn one by one. It is quite possible that the first person was called into the barn and killed, and that everyone who walked in after them saw their dead family members before meeting their own end. The bodies were stacked on top of each other and were covered with a pile of hay. The murderer or murderers then moved on to the house where they found Maria and Joseph and killed them too. Not to get too far ahead of us here, but what's really scary here is that the investigators later determined that it was not possible to hear things happening in parts of the barn from the home. So it is likely that the living family members had no reason to believe that they were in any danger. The other side of the coin is the possibility that maybe they knew something strange was happening. They'd been hearing scary things for months at this point, and maybe they heard something suspicious suspicious, and went to investigate it. I honestly don't even know which is worse. Like, they're both just horrible scenarios. Can you imagine, like, being in the house, and then you hear a strange noise, or even a scream, possibly... What would you have done? Like, would you have waited in the house not knowing what might be coming? Or would you be that person and go investigate? Okay, but seriously, think about that. Like, what are you even supposed to do at that point? Because the reality of it is, with the exception of Victoria and Maria, all of the victims were senior citizens or children. I just don't see how they would have had a way out. The fact that this is all happening on the isolated farm makes it so much more scary. I just imagine it being so dark and quiet and, like, maybe you just hear, like, wildlife or something, you know, very quietly. Like, it's, it really is horror movie, like, cinematic. I can imagine it. Like, honestly, like, even if the victims had called out or screamed, the farm was so isolated that even the closest neighbors wouldn't have heard anything. Or if they had, by the time anyone arrived to investigate, it probably would have been too late for the family and their maid anyway. And Andreas, anyways, was known for yelling when he was angry, and so people were probably kind of used to hearing strange stuff coming from the farm. It took about four days before anyone would find the bodies. At this point, you're probably thinking, ah, they lived on a rural farm, probably didn't have a lot of visitors. If that's the case, you'll be shocked to know that over those four days, a large number of people would be present on the farm without knowing that every single person who lived on the property had been brutally slaughtered. It is very possible that the first instance of this was as early as 3 a.m. the following morning. A farmer who had been traveling home passed the farm. 
he would later claim that he saw two figures standing at the edge of the forest and that they turned around as soon as they saw him. During the day of April 1st, a traveling merchant arrived on the farm to sell the family some coffee. They left when no one answered the door, but they did note that the door to the machine room on the barn was open. The merchant made his way to the home of Lorenz Schlittenbauer and mentioned to him that the farm had seemed empty that morning. This struck him as strange because the farm was usually bustling with activity. Later that day, between 3 p.m. and 5 p.m., two hunters visited the farm in hopes of purchasing some supplies. They just assumed no one was home due to the fact that there was no smoke coming from the chimney and the chicken coop was completely empty. And speaking of animals, a few people who stopped by noted that it did look like someone was taking care of the livestock as well as the family dog. A postman saw the dog tied up outside the barn and he didn't think much of it. Throughout the course of the day and the evening, numerous people would note that they saw evidence of activity on the farm. Smoke was seen coming out of the chimney on a few different occasions by a bunch of different people. And other than the fact that no one had actually seen the Grubers around, people didn't notice a huge difference. At this point, they probably just saw that everything on the farm was getting done and thought that the Grubers just wanted some privacy. But eventually people noticed that they weren't there. The farm was quiet. Andreas wasn't exactly a quiet man like we mentioned before. Folks would often hear him yelling at someone. This time, things stayed silent. That evening at 11.30pm, a man named Michael Plockel claimed to have a very strange encounter on Hinterkaifeck Farm. He said that he was passing by when he noticed that there was a light coming from the house and smoke rising from the chimney. He described the smoke as smelling disgusting. This is where it gets even stranger. He claims to have been approached by someone carrying a lantern and that the person held the light in his face and then turned around and went back to the courtyard area of the property. Michael said that he ran away in fear and he did not return. They say this was all on April 1st as well. And on April 2nd, the family wasn't present in church, which was really strange for them. Normally, they wouldn't dare miss Sunday Mass. Victoria was a singer in the church choir and two of her friends were supposed to meet her so that they could go to church together. They began to grow suspicious when she didn't show up along with the rest of the Gruber family. Little Cecilia was missed very quickly, and on Monday, her school noticed that she was absent. That day, the postman, a man named Joseph Meyer, noticed that the family hadn't checked the mail in a few days. He had been delivering mail to the family for a long time and would normally see the elder Cecilia with her grandson Joseph in the kitchen. Finally, on April 4th, a mechanic showed up at the house of Lorenz Schlittenbauer. He mentioned that the Gruber family had originally hired him to fix their feed cutting machine, but that no one was there. He asked him to let them know that he took apart the door to the machine room because it was locked, and that he fixed the machine and had left. If you remember, one of the other visitors to the farm had noticed that the machine room door was open. One of the other strange things to note here is that he also said that the dog was barking at him, and that when he left, the dog had been tied up by someone, and that the door that was left open was locked again. This stood out enough to him that he wanted to make sure that Lorenz knew something strange might be happening. To me, it's just like someone having like a Scooby-Doo moment and like slinking around him without ever being seen and like, you know, like hiding behind the corner and waiting until he was out of sight. And I don't know if I'm just like a really like loud and clumsy person, but I feel like Oh, dude. Like, sneaking around around that many different people, like, that can't have been easy. No, I'm like a giraffe on ice skates at any given moment. Like, I stumble I over feel that. absolutely, like, I could be standing still and suddenly I'll just, like, fall over for no reason. And so, I think if nothing else, it proves that this person was pretty familiar, like, with their surroundings during this time. Absolutely. And honestly, at this point, Lorenz began to get nervous, too. 
He heard about little Cecilia not being at school and was even more concerned when he realized the family missed church. Now remember, he was very attached to Victoria, despite the fact that the two were not able to wed, and it is possible that he also believed he could be the father of little Joseph. He sent his 16-year-old son, Johan, and his 9-year-old stepson, Joseph, to go to the farm and see if they could figure out what was going on. I find that kind of interesting, because, I mean, at this point, he knew something weird was happening, and it wasn't even that long ago that Andreas had gone to him about strange things happening on the farm, but he still thought to himself that, you know, the kids should check it out. I mean, yes and no. I mean, but maybe, like, self-preservation on his own half? Well, he's not going to be winning any Parent of the Year awards, (laughs) that's for sure. Man, like, if I were one of those boys, knowing the reputation of Andreas for being, you know, a meanie, I probably would have been hoping, like, not to come across any of them, to be honest. Like, I wouldn't want Andreas to be like, why are you doing on my property? Right? And, I mean, luckily for them, the boys just looked into some of the windows and they returned when they didn't see anything. Lorenz wanted to check this for himself, and he finally decided to go to the farm along with Michael Plockel and Jacob Sigel. The three men arrived on the farm around 5 p.m. Lorenz was familiar with the property and knew his way around. The first thing that stuck out to him was that all of the entry points, except for one, were locked or barred shut. The only entrance that was available was the one to the machine room, which the mechanic had taken apart. And they didn't notice anything out out of place in the machine room, so they moved on to the barn. The door that connected the machine room to the rest of the barn was jammed shut. The men broke it down. At first, nothing was out of the ordinary. The cattle all seemed fine. Lorenz took a few steps into the building and stepped into a pile of hay. As he looked down, he saw that a foot was sticking out. What they discovered next was probably an image that they would not soon be able to remove from their minds. The men stood there in absolute silence until Lorenz pulled on the foot. He quickly saw that the body belonged to Andreas Gruber. The right side of his face had been completely smashed in, and he was soaked in his own blood. His face was described as shredded by many different sources, and honestly, that's a pretty accurate way to put it. He basically had bits and pieces of his cheekbones sticking through his flesh, and he was completely covered in blood. Like, his face was completely destroyed, and his right eye was totally caved in. This was undoubtedly a brutal attack. Lorenz and the men looked around and noticed something else under the hay. They brushed the hay away, and they found the bodies of Cecilia, Victoria, and seven-year-old Cecilia. The bodies had been thrown on top of one on top of the other and were covered in hay. We want to clarify that it didn't really seem like someone went out of their way to hide these bodies. The farm probably had a whole bunch of different places that a body could have been disposed of. To me, it would have made more sense to bury them somewhere in the forest surrounding the farm, or even just take them into the forest and leave them for the wild animals to take care of them, so to speak. Right? I mean, I hate to be super morbid about it, but the reality is that, you know, the Grubers probably had pigs, Mm -hmm. and we've seen numerous times throughout true crime history that if you give a pig a body, they'll deal with it. Exactly. There were a ton of different ways that they could have hidden the bodies if they wanted to, but whoever killed the Gruber family basically just tossed them aside and covered them up. Lorenz at this point noticed that Cecilia and Victoria had similar injuries. Both of their heads had been crushed in, and Victoria's skull appeared to be broken. The elder Cecilia also had numerous slash wounds across her neck. Strangely enough, Victoria's head was also covered in what looked like small star-shaped wounds. 
We tried really hard to find out if they ever figured out what made the star-shaped wounds, but even the autopsy reports, which we'll get to later, were not able to determine that. Shortly after, the men examined the body of little Cecilia, and the details regarding her death are one of the many things that make this case so shocking. We do warn you, this might be a little bit hard to hear. The killer, or killers, shattered her jaw entirely, and she had a large bloody slit across her throat. They noticed that her hand was still clutched, and they were shocked to discover that she was holding clumps of her own hair. This proved that unlike the rest of her family, she didn't die immediately or even quickly. She was left in the barn near death and died in absolute torment. Her head had numerous bald patches from it, uh, from her ripping her own hair out in, in what was likely terror. It's likely that she laid there for several hours surrounded by her dead family members. Police would later theorize that she was still dying in the barn while Joseph and Maria were being killed. Unable to even call out because of her shattered jaw, she was likely the last family member to die. That little detail there is something I can't stop thinking about. She was so freaking young. She was only seven years old. The idea of this happening to an adult is of course terrible, but the idea of a small child being left around the corpses of her brutally murdered family while she screams and rips her hair out, it, that's, you know, that shit stays with you for a while. You're not alone there. Honestly, I kind of felt like when we were looking into this, a lot of the cases, it's like the first time you hear something, it's shocking. And then you kind of like, get, I don't want to say get over it, but you get desensitized to it. That fact, every single time I hear it, it hits me. I think it's whenever it's kids, because to me, like, you can say whatever you want about the adults in this family. They're pretty scandalous. They're doing whatever. But the kids of, or sorry, the deaths of these kids, like, they're just innocent. Absolutely. You can't justify that. No. And honestly, Lorenz, seeing all of this, he understandably grew very concerned over the absence of little Joseph. The two men stayed in the barn while Lorenz went to look for him. In the main living area of the house, he found Joseph. He was still in his crib, and whoever had killed him had covered him in one of Victoria's dresses. This kind of thing always makes me wonder if the killer chose to cover him after killing him. Like, does that indicate some kind of sense of regret or, like, hesitation? It's interesting because whoever did this, they did cover the other bodies up, but they covered them up with hay. Joseph was covered in something much more personal. I mean, Maria was still covered too, but she was covered in a sheet. I want you all to kind of take a second and think about like where your head would be right now if you were Lorenz. Like, how do you think you would react? He's just found his neighbors dead, including a woman he likely loved very much or had at least loved at some point, as well as a boy who could have he could have possibly believed was his son. You'd probably be freaking out, right? At the end of the day, I mean, there's no telling how you're going to react in some situations until you're actually in them. But it was noted that Lorenz Schlittenbauer was incredibly calm and collected throughout this entire experience. And it could have been, like, he could have been that way for a number of reasons. Like, maybe he was in complete and total shock. Yeah. It's hard to say, but this is something we're going to kind of come back to in a bit. Lorenz calmly went back to the barn and asked the men to help him search for the rest of the property in hopes that they would find some clues or indication on who had killed the family. This is when they found Maria, the maid, also dead in her room. Since Maria had just arrived on the farm that day, the men did not recognize her. She was found near a bag with her clothing and personal belongings in it. It's very likely that Maria didn't even get a chance to unpack and settle in before she died. Poor Maria. I know. The men also noticed that there was still a fire going in the fireplace and that there was evidence that someone had eaten in the house very recently. At this point, the Gruber family and Maria had been dead for a few days. 
This food has, had been consumed probably hours beforehand. Lorenz and the men finally had enough of this terrible scene and called the authorities to report the murders. And just like in many of the cases we cover, the folks who lived in the surrounding area quickly got word of what happened on the farm. They started showing up in small crowds hoping to get a glimpse of the crime scene. And the thing to remember here is how shocked everyone must have been. This wasn't a situation of like the family going missing and then, you know, people getting worried over time. Their acquaintances and neighbors almost all reported seeing some signs of life on the farm up until that day and really had no reason to ever believe that something like this could have happened days prior. They saw smoke coming from the chimney numerous times, they saw that the cows were being fed, and then they noticed someone was taking care of the dog. Like we said, for all they knew, the groupers were there and they just wanted a little bit of extra privacy. Unfortunately, at this point, between the curious bystanders and the men that had who had discovered the bodies, the entire crime scene had been looked at, touched, and things had been moved around this would make the later investigation so much more complicated. And you honestly, you see it a lot with a lot of these old-timey crimey cases where people would take, you know, souvenirs mm -hmm. from the crime scenes and they'd get pretty ballsy with it too. Consider the bloody benders that we talked about. People literally took chunks of wood that made up their cabin as souvenirs. And that, we have a question for you guys. What are your thoughts on crime scene souvenirs? Let us know on Twitter. Yeah, absolutely. I, people in those days, and you know what? I shouldn't even say those days because I, I think a few people might be pretty shameless these days too, but shameless about taking things from crime scenes. I mean, I think a lot of it, even at this time in the 20s, it would still have been considered evidence. This is actually going to be relevant a bit later when we talk about what happened to the property after the murders. One of the boys, we aren't quite sure which one, although it was likely the older boy, Johan, was sent by bicycle to the nearest town to alert the mayor who could dispatch the local police force. This poor kid. I'm just picturing this horrified German teenager just like biking his little ass as hard as he can through the Bavarian countryside after witnessing an absolute hellscape. On his like 1922 bike that was probably like from 1901. Like, oh, th there was probably like no gears on that bike. No. For sure. It was like a one-speed Barely situation. a horse. Yeah. Like, uh, when um, he finally arrived and the police were called all the way from Munich and they came to investigate. When they did arrive, they found dozens of people at the farm. Pretty much everyone who had heard about it had made their way to the farm to find out what had happened. Not only did they all show up, they completely contaminated the crime scene. It was bad enough that Lorenz, Michael, and Jacob had walked through the entire area now there were people all over the farm touching things, taking things, and basically just messing everything up. Like, not only all of that, they were literally seen in the kitchen making snacks for themselves. They really just, they showed up at an active crime scene and just made themselves at home. They didn't just, like, snack on fruit that they found. They literally, like, started cooking full meals and eating in their kitchen. It sounds like people were like, okay, yeah, let's let's make a day of it. Let's go out to the Gruber farm and grab some lunch while we're there. It's more like, let's go to this house of this family that just got murdered and eat their food. Like... You know, like, oh, we have an attraction and dinner. Perfect. Wonderful. What a day. Dinner and a movie. Exactly. And despite all that, the police did begin their investigation. 
Inspector George Reingruber and his department were tasked with an incredibly difficult job. We're going to get into the details of the investigation in part three of this series. That's right. There's going to be a third part. Because this is such a fascinating case. And the thing to remember is that so much was changing in Germany and the rest of the world in 1922. And quite a few of those things would heavily impact the investigation. And we were curious about what forensics actually looked like in 1922 in Germany and what kind of information and evidence gathering methods would have been used at this time so we looked into that for you it's pretty impressive honestly you know we're talking about a hundred years ago nearly exactly and there were quite a few significant developments in the forensic sciences around those times crime scene photography was originally developed in 1864 which means that by this point of course people took a ton of photos of what happened at Hinterkaifeck farm and uh, we'll post them on the Instagram, and if you're watching the YouTube video, there they are for you. Um, but if not, then feel free to look them up yourself, because they they're chilling. We're not going to be posting, like, the really, really bad no. ones. Those ones are available, and they're, uh, they're, they're rough. Yeah, you can Google them if yeah, you're brave really enough to. Yeah. Or you can just look at pictures of puppies. Yeah, we also recommend that. Yeah. You know, if you need a little palate cleanser for your eyeballs. Depends on how your day's going. <laughs> There's especially this one particular photo of the victims. The bodies, like, they honestly just look like they were thrown away and covered as an afterthought. The image that was taken of the bodies stacked in the hay is the one when you first see it, it doesn't really strike you as unusual. And again, because it's an old-time one, it's in black and white, so it kind of takes that, I don't know, realism away from it. And then you kind of see the feet poking out of the hay, and you're like, oh, okay, yep. The first classification for forensic fingerprint identification was developed all the way back in 1869, and a system to identify people using their body measurements was developed in 1879. In today's world, that probably doesn't seem like much, but honestly, the world had a ton of forensic developments in the late 1800s to the early 1900s, so the police had a fair amount of tools to work with, so to speak. There were honestly a ton, and by this point, human blood groups had been identified, and Edmund Locard formulated his famous principle, every contact leaves a trace, which apparently was a memo that all of the crime scene fanboys and fangirls at Hinterkaifeck didn't get. By 1915, there were active measures being taken to ensure that there was a procedure when it came to gathering evidence and sending it to test for testing in various labs. Speaking of sending things away to labs... Right, let's get to the autopsies. Dr. Johann Baptiste Amuller, a court physician, was given the task of completing an autopsy on each victim. He performed all six autopsies in the barn. He determined that the main murder weapon was a mattock, which is a hand tool with a head that consists of two ends opposite each other. One is similar to a pickaxe, while the other is more flat-shaped, like an axe. Overall, as you can probably imagine, pretty brutal weapon to kill someone with. They had other wounds which suggested that different methods were used to attack them, but it was eventually determined that this was the main weapon. He also confirmed that seven-year-old Cecilia had been alive for hours after the rest of the family was murdered. In regards to her, the autopsy report stated that her jaw had been shattered. She had severe head injuries, including several blows to her skull that shattered it in various spots. She also had a wide gaping wound across her neck, as well as a circular wound on her face. He also mentioned in his report that her hand was cramped and contained chunks of her hair. And you guys, that's from the actual autopsy report. Like, that's not just, like, a legend or exaggeration. That is actually what happened to this poor little girl. Yeah. Uh, Cecilia Sr. sustained severe bruising to her right eye. 
She had also been struck in the head seven times and bore seven wounds from it. They were all shaped the same, except for one that was more the shape of a triangle. Her skull was cracked, and she showed signs of strangulation. Victoria, like we mentioned, had nine star-shaped wounds to her head, and I'm honestly just, we're still just really not sure what that means. A part of me, it, I wonder if it was like a screwdriver or something, but they don't mention much about the size of the wounds or anything, so that's a bit of a mystery. Victoria, like her mother, showed signs that she had been strangled. She also had a smashed skull, and the right side of her face had been smashed in with a blunt object. She also had a small round injury that came from a pointed tool on the upper part of her skull. And strangulation is another one of those very personal ways to kill someone. Yeah. You know, when you if, if you're strangling someone with your bare hands, it pretty much indicates that you were face-to-face with your victim as you killed them. The victim's wounds, like, they were horrible. Andrea's, like we mentioned earlier, his face was completely smashed in. His cheekbones are broken, and they protruded through his flesh, which was described as shredded. His face was completely caked in blood. You'd almost say that this was, like, overkill, because I would imagine, realistically, a blow to the head from that kind of weapon, this mattock, this pickaxe, you wouldn't think that it would really require more than two good blows to, like, take someone out. And then you see, like, Victoria with her, what was it, nine wounds? And then Cecilia with the seven wounds? Like, that's a lot. It's a lot. I mean, it really says that whoever did this was hateful. They were angry, and they really, really wanted to do as much damage as possible. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Maria was likely killed while she was in the middle of unpacking, and it's highly possible that she didn't hear or see her killer coming. She was killed by numerous crosswise blows to the head, which left her face covered in blood. Uh, crosswise just meaning from the left and then the right repeatedly. One of the head wounds was four centimeters deep. And for our American listeners, that is about an inch and a half deep. Little Joseph Gruber was killed by a heavy blow to his face. His bassinet was partially destroyed and he was then covered up. So what kind of fucking monster is so evil that they can kill a toddler? Oh, it's brutal, Like, dude. never mind murdering them with a weapon as brutal as a matic and we'll show you guys a picture of it on the socials and stuff you, you yeah you don't want to see that anywhere near a baby no like oh my god no like it's just a horrible horrible weapon like honestly all of this just breaks my heart for joseph and for Cecilia. and honestly what happened next it just continues to make these hinterkaifeck murders just stand out it this story is just it just keeps getting worse it really does dr johan He removed all of the heads from all of the bodies, and he sent them to Munich for further investigation. So what that means is that all six of these victims were buried without their heads. The heads were then sent to be investigated by probably a few different types of people, but it's strongly believed that they were also investigated by clairvoyance. Yes, clairvoyance. We're going back to those. It brings us back to our third episode when we talked about another troubled family, the Bloody Benders. Yeah, there's actually kind of a few uh, not super big um, similarities, but, you know, it's kind of the same vibe. So if you haven't listened to the third episode about the Benders yet, definitely go back and listen to that after this because it's a gooder. Yeah, you know what? Even if you have listened to it, do it again. Yeah, do it again. Just listen to us again. Do Do, it. It's good for you. Good for (laughs) yourself. Now, the Bender murders, they happened in the late 1800s all the way in Kansas, but that doesn't mean that this story doesn't share some similarities. For example, at this point in the 20s, the use of clairvoyance was common throughout pretty big parts of the world. And that brings us back to spiritualism. 
the uh we talked about that a lot more in that bloody benders episode but we'll give you a basic rundown so spiritualists believe that it was possible to communicate with someone after they had passed away through a series of methods often using a medium or clairvoyant at this point clairvoyants were used in a lot of different ways and it's likely that they were sent to be looked at in an effort to gain more information about the murders after world war one the spiritualist movement gained a lot of popularity so it's hard to say whether the investigators actually believed that the clairvoyants were going to help them or if they were just so desperate for answers at that point. Even in more modern cases, when the police run out of leads, they've been known to turn to psychic mediums with, I mean, various levels of success. And here's the shocking thing with this case that a lot of people don't know is they lost their damn heads. As if these people hadn't <laughs> been through enough, now the clairvoyants lost their heads. Isn't that terrible like world war ii started pretty pretty shortly after the investigation and amidst everything else that was happening in munich at the time they just disappeared there's so many details in this story that are honestly just unbelievable like it starts with horrible noises in the house and all these strange things happening and it ends with six missing heads not to mention all the tragic details about cecilia jr and the fact that we don't even know who did this we're going to talk more about the investigation itself in the next episode, as well as kind of talk about the list of suspects and the effect that World War II had on the investigation. We're also going to talk about the fact that people have been heavily investigating this case even now. It's still considered an unsolved mystery, but perhaps our next episode is going to change your mind. Yeah, maybe. It's a fascinating case because just like all these crazy details coming together. So that brings us to the end of part two of our three-part series on the Hinterkaifeck murders. And there is still so much more to cover. There's, there's so much more to go over. So if you think this story is anywhere near over, you are very, very wrong. We hope you enjoyed part two of this little series. It's a pretty unforgettable story. We're actually shocked that more people hadn't heard of it. But if you went into this not knowing about it, then don't worry. That's what we're here for. And it's really satisfying for us when we can teach you something you may not have known before. Yeah, because uh, I can't speak for Dina, but I'm actually an insufferable know-it-all. And I like to know a lot of things about everything. And so when other people share in an interest that I have a passion for, it makes me very happy. And I also think, like, with stories like this, one of the reasons that we wanted to focus so heavily on the information here is... A lot of people have told this story, but so much important stuff gets left out. And I feel like this is a family at the end of the day. These were real people and we need to do them justice by telling their story as best as possible. Absolutely. Um, so with all that said, make sure you don't miss out on the Grim Curriculum news by following us on Instagram at The Grim Curriculum and Grim Curriculum on Twitter. And we also do a live premiere of all of our episodes at 12 p.m. MST every Saturday. We sure do. You can find us both on social media. I'm Ominous Walrus on Twitter. No, I'm not. I'm Ominous underscore Walrus yeah, on you Twitter. Are. And Ominous Walrus on Instagram. Also, um, we do put all this information in our show notes and in our details and whatnot. So you can always check that out there too. So if you're finding us online and you're just hearing this episode, go follow us on stuff. Yeah. We're, we're neat. Yeah, I'm funny. Yeah, I'm okay. <laughs> <laughs> I am Dina V on Twitter. Uh, Dina V IG on Instagram. And I'm Dina V Tweets on, uh, on Twitter. So thanks for listening. This has been The Grim, Grim Curriculum. Curriculum.